Welcome back. Welcome back. It's been a few weeks since we have been in Galatians, but we are back in Galatians and we're going to uh, continue to work through chapter three. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter three. If you're new to church and you're new to the Bible, uh, just remind you that the table of contents is your friend. Uh, And and I remember being at Bible studies as a, a person who was not yet a believer and struggling to find um, the right place, and by the time I got there, it felt like the message was half over, and I was I was always discouraged. But if you have one of those uh, Bibles underneath your chair, um, I, I, if somebody knows, can you just call out the page number that that's on? Um, Five, thanks, Jeff Wooler. 566 is Galatians chapter 3 in that gray Bible underneath your seat there. And, and you feel free to take one of those if you don't have a paper Bible. Um, I preached a funeral for a wonderful woman uh, a few years ago, and she was a brand new believer. And I was able to look at her paper Bible and follow the breadcrumbs of all the significant passages that she highlighted and put exclamation marks beside and it was just a wonderful thing to be able to um, demonstrate her faith through her own notes in her own paper Bible Uh, nothing against technology you might use your phone as a Bible that's uh, helpful but their um, personal opinion there's nothing like a paper Bible um, just to demonstrate your time and activity in the Word of God and so um, I hope I've stalled long enough for those who are new to uh, preaching uh, to the Bible for you to be able to find uh, the book of Galatians. And, uh, and we're going to read and work through three, chapter three. Those are the big numbers, and the little numbers are the verse numbers, verses 15 through 25. And, and we've been trying to get through Galatians for quite some time. Anytime I approach a, uh, a tee box, I play golf. It's the only kind of sport left for me. I tore my meniscus up playing basketball, and uh, there's a lot of sports that, uh, you know, as an almost 50-year-old that I just can't really do much anymore, but, but I sure do like to play golf. And, uh, and I, oftentimes I have all these swing thoughts when I step onto a tee box of what to remember and what to do, what not to do. And by the time my mind is flooded with all these swing thoughts, uh, I pretty much am guaranteed I'm going to shank one left or right uh, uh, and, and pretty much make a fool of myself on a tee box. Hopefully that's not the case here. Maybe that's a bad introduction. Um, but when I step into the pulpit and when I approach the Word of God, I have a couple of um, swing thoughts. Uh, uh, one is some thoughts that I have been meditating on for the last six weeks as I approach the Word of God. You may have heard me pray this in the previous weeks. Is that anytime we approach the Word of God, that we would approach it like a starving person approaches a meal. If you've ever not eaten for a couple of days or fasted for a period of time, you know, when, when we do our... Um, quarterly day of prayer and fasting, there's nothing better than those crackers, right? When we come into that sort of end of the fast together, uh, we all sit around and one brother uh, made this wonderful suggestion, hey, let's eat before we pray next time. And so at six o'clock, we break the fast together before we enter our time of prayer. And it's a beautiful thing. Uh, but, but 
to approach the Word of God in the same way that you would approach the Word of God as a starving person uh, approaches a meal or as a thirsty person approaches water. Those are a few swing thoughts that every time I come to the Word, I'm reminded that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted that in his temptation in the wilderness. Um, Moses taught that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that God brought them through the desert so that he could teach them all these things, but one of them was their dependence on the Word of God. So as we approach the Word of God, those are the ways in which we want to approach it. Uh, Another swing thought, um, Charles Spurgeon wrote, unless the Holy Ghost blesses the Word, we who preach the gospel are of all men the most miserable, for we have attempted a task that is impossible. We have entered into a sphere where nothing but the supernatural will ever avail. If the Holy Spirit does not renew the hearts of our hearers, we cannot do it. If the Holy Ghost does not regenerate them, we cannot. If he does not send the truth home into their souls, we might as well speak into the ear of a corpse." I just want you to know that I acknowledge that. Uh, I have a dozen more swing thoughts when I come up here, but, but these are the most important, that the Word of God would be heard and that the Holy Spirit would um, bring it home for you. So pray with me as, uh, before we read our passage for today. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you, the Word made flesh, um, that all things were spoken into existence by a Word, by the Word of the Creator. And we exalt you for that. We thank you that you spoke life into existence. And so regardless of what we're going through today, we know that one word from you and the power of your Holy Spirit might change our lives and our hearts forever. We pray that you would speak to us by your word and by your spirit and that you would use your word to grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Would you bless our time together in your word this morning and meet us where we are in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 15, and I'll try to bring us back up to speed uh, during, the, uh, during the message today since it's been a while since we've been in Galatians. But starting in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise." But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Well, we caught up with Paul midstream, uh, mid-argument here. And so if, if you're a little bit confused as to where we are, uh, let me just kind of briefly remind you of how far we've come. Galatians is an intense letter. Uh, Paul is very intense. Uh, it's, it's very aggressive. The tone of Galatians, uh, right after chapter 1, in the first couple of verses, grace and peace and, and God the Father, and the, right away, verse 6, he's astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. His energy and intensity just hits a spike and he maintains that spike through five more chapters, the intensity level. Why is he so intense? Well, Paul had planted a lot of churches in the region of Galatia, many churches. He labored with the gospel and with his team in every city he went to, starting these churches and seeing people come to faith in Christ and seeing them delivered from their issues and from their sins and finding forgiveness and finding new life in Christ Jesus. And then as soon as that was over and he left, all the churches in that region were infiltrated by a group called the Judaizers. They followed Paul into every one of those locations. And throughout all of those churches, they taught them that Jesus is great. But if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to please God, if you really want to be righteous, if you really want to be saved, then you have to add to Jesus obedience to the law. You have to follow the law if you really want to please God, you have to follow all the sacrifices, all the diets, all the temple obligations, all the giving, all the stuff, all the priests, everything has to be thrown in if you really want to please God. And essentially, they were saying that Jesus plus law equals salvation. Jesus is not sufficient in and of himself his death on the cross was not enough to save you. The imputed righteousness of Christ does not make God happy with you in Christ alone. It is in Christ Jesus plus obedience to the law. And that's what has Paul so furious. He is hopping mad and he's basically screaming at them, why would you abandon the gospel of grace by faith in Christ Jesus for something that doesn't bring life? The law never brings life. 
And he's going to get into all the reasons why they should never abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone for any sort of gospel plus something else. So how's this relevant to us today? I think because we add things to the gospel all the time. We talk about Jesus as sufficient, but then we add to that astrology or some sort of new age spiritualism. We add things to salvation all the time. We need Jesus plus uh, a morality. We need Jesus plus a, a particular ministry philosophy. Or We add things to the gospel thinking that it will make us or increase our righteousness in Christ, but it's not sufficient. Jesus plus anything for salvation equals nothing. While Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Why would the Galatians choose to exchange the gospel of grace by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Why would they choose to do that for the futility and curse of trying to please God by works of the law? There are hundreds of years of slavery to Scripture demonstrated in the Old Testament where they could not keep the law despite their best efforts. They really wanted to, right? They really tried their hardest, but they found themselves falling short constantly. They chose to exchange the gospel of grace by faith. The Galatian church chose to exchange the gospel of grace by faith in Christ for a gospel of grace plus works. I don't know if you remember those choose your own adventure books. Uh, I remember I hated to read as a kid. I just wanted to go outside. I just wanted to play. I just wanted to, I wanted to do anything but read. And it didn't help that I had an older brother and an older sister and a little brother and a little sister who only wanted to read. And they would get these um, coupon things if they read through a stack of books in the summer. And they would read 50 or 100 books in a summer. And I would read a half of one if I, if I was forced to. I just did not like to read. But one year, I don't know uh, what happened, but I, I, I was given this choose your own adventure book. Do you remember those? Anybody remember those choose your own? You read and it gets to a page and it says, now, now if this was you, if you were the main character and you would go this way, turn to page 47 and follow that track. Or if, if, you, were a, if you would do this thing, then you go this way. And I, I read those books over and over again, teasing out all the different um, endings to the story. If I chose this one or that one, I was fascinated fascinated with this sort of choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Uh, these Galatians are in a sense saying, we love Jesus, but we want to add Jesus plus something. And in that way, they're choosing a different way, a different gospel. It's really no gospel at all, Paul says. I'm astonished that you're turning to a different gospel. Chapter 1, verse 6. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some people who are troubling you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ Jesus. So throughout the letter to the Galatians, Paul is trying to convince them of all the ways in which the law is insufficient for you to be pleasing to God. So my prayer for you today and my prayer for us today is that we would, um, that we would understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Like, well, that's the most basic part of Christianity, right? We all understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Yet at the same time, our hearts are sneaky enough that we slip into that idolatry, right? Exodus 20 outlines the Ten Commandments and the ways in which we violate the laws by worshiping things that uh, we're having other gods in our lives or or worshiping idols or not keeping Sabbath law or, uh, you know, if we work on a Saturday, then that's considered breaking violation of that commandment commandment, not honoring our parents, not um, lying or murdering or coveting, uh, all the ways in which we break God's law, um, we're reminded that salvation is by grace through faith and that we can't be law keepers. You just can't. You can't be moral enough. You can't be good enough. And that disparity reminds us of the futility of living in our flesh and drives us to faith and dependence in Christ Jesus. That's the main point I want to help us see in this passage, is that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. You can't please God by works done outside of faith in Jesus. Works have a place. They come after salvation. We don't rely on works to gain standing with God. We do works after faith in Christ Jesus. Works in the Spirit. Works done out of gratitude. But any work that you feel like earns you righteousness before God outside of Christ Jesus is an effort in futility. Paul's making that very clear in this passage. John Owen said it this way, we can begin each day with a deeply encouraging realization that I'm accepted by God, not on the basis of my personal performance, but on the basis of the infinitely perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? For those of us who, um, who are well aware of our own sinfulness and the, the wickedness that resides within our own hearts, even as redeemed people, we're still in this tension between um, walking in sanctification and walking with Christ, and yet the the, the temptation, the pull that draws us backward. And that tension, that um, fight will be maintained throughout our earthly life. But we are accepted already because of the finished work of Christ Jesus and us receiving that by faith. I ask myself this question, this question at this point in my sermon every week. Purpose statement, Gibson, by the end of this sermon, what do you hope and pray that God impresses upon those who are listening through this message? And this is what I wrote today. Father, would you bring conviction and the gift of faith and repentance to all those who are depending on their own works, on their own morality, and on their own righteousness instead? And that's my prayer. That's my prayer for us. So let's get back into the text and see how this all fits together. In Galatians 3, verse 15 through 18, Paul is giving them an example of why the law is insufficient. And he basically says it this way, um, with this covenant that God made with Abraham, he made these promises to Abraham, and they were blessings, and they were blessings, and God made these good promises to him, and Abraham believed God, and it was what? was credited to him as righteousness. You know that verse. Abram believed God's promises and God counted Abraham's response of faith as righteousness. And so Paul is saying, but it was 430 years later that the law came. 
So faith precedes righteousness by the law. That makes sense. Faith came first. Abraham didn't have to follow the law. Have you ever read Genesis? There is no real law following in Genesis. Sometimes you look at Genesis and you're like, how did they get away with this? They, they slaughtered a whole village that they circumcised first with Dinah, and then they sold a brother into slavery and threw him in a pit. And there's, there's just one sin after another sin after another sin, and there's the repeated promise, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be my people. And, and it's enough to make us kind of confused as to why God would continue to, to, um, to put up with their lawlessness behavior. Well, the fact is that they were sinners, but God chose to um, give them righteousness because they believed in the promise, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the coming of the righteous one. They were fulfilled and they were made righteous by faith. So then why does the law come along? Um, why does the law come along? That's the, um, that's the second section that we have here, verses 19 through 20. Why the law? I have people ask me all the time, are we obligated to follow the Old Testament law? You know, it talks about hair length for guys and tattoos, and, and why is it okay for Christians to get tattoos and for guys to have long hair? And why are we not following all these Old Testament, Levitical, ritual, dietary laws? The law was given for a purpose. Look at verse 19. The law was given because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was added, an alternative translation is to multiply transgressions. Why would God want to multiply transgressions? The law reveals what's already there. Have you ever been in a dark room and you sit on a couch or you, uh, you, you fluff a pillow or something and the room looks fine? And then what happens when you open the curtains and all the sunbeams flow through? What do you see? You see stuff all in the air. And if you saw that, you would think, oh my goodness, am I breathing this all the time? Um, was that dust gone when the curtains were closed, when the room was dark? No, they, they were still there. Anytime you sit somewhere or fluff a pillow and, uh, or whatever, it stirs up all the stuff, right? And, and what, does it happen, what happens when the light shines in? It doesn't create the dust. It just reveals it. In the same way, the law reveals just how sinful we are in a surgically precise way. The law reveals what's already there. The law doesn't produce new sin. It reveals or gives occasion to define the sin that already exists. Now, why do we need that? We need that because somehow, even still, with all the issues of the law, 621 laws associated with Old Testament Israel and the covenant at Sinai, even still, we have a capacity in our human nature to think of ourselves as good, to think of ourselves as sinless, don't we? If I ask a person, why do you think God would allow you to come into heaven? They would say, because I'm a good person. That's the number one answer. 
I, I remember um, buying um, thousands of, of gospel tracts uh, when I was first called to be an evangelist. And in one particular year, in maybe 2003 or 2004, I kept a journal of all the people that I shared the gospel with. And it was something like 400 people or something like that, just in day-to-day conversations with the mechanic or with the person at the convenience store or wherever. Uh, I just made it my goal that particular year to initiate as many gospel conversations as I could leading up to some key questions. One of them being, uh, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? 90% of the people who responded to that question said, because I'm a good person. So in spite of the law, which damns us, frankly, it condemns us. In spite of the law that condemns us, people still think that they're good enough to earn their own salvation through works and through morality. The law was put in place to multiply transgressions or to reveal our own sinfulness. It says it was a guardian. Well, how does that, how does that gel with the promises of God? Well, that's his next question. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if you could earn your way to heaven through being righteous, through the works of the law, then it would bring life. Your rule following would bring you life. And I'm not just talking about a heartbeat and blood coursing through your veins. That's not life, that's existence. None of us are looking for merely existence. We're all looking for life meaning, purpose, a clear conscience, grace, forgiveness of sins, a reason to get up that's bigger than ourselves. Life is not produced through law following outside of Christ Jesus. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, verse 22 says. The law and the promise are not contrary to each other. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Because scripture, frankly, presents both of those seemingly opposing truths. Scripture presents them not in opposition, but in some sort of a divine tension. And it's a mystery to us. Where does God's sovereignty take over? And where does my free will end? And how do those two work together? Spurgeon's reply was this. He was once asked how he could reconcile the apparent contradiction between these two truths. And he replied, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I don't need to reconcile what God has joined together. Well, that applies to the law and the promise. The law and the promise are not at odds with one another. The law reflects the holiness and the perfection of God. And it works perfectly with the promises and the heart of God, which longs to bless us. As he promised Abraham, you'll be a blessing. You'll be a blessing to your family. You'll be a blessing to your people. You'll be a blessing to the whole world through your offspring. Those two are not at war against each other. Those two are perfectly 
complementary to one another in the purpose of God in redemptive history. The law and the promise are issued from the same God. They are not enemies. Though we may love grace and hate the law, or though if we're self-righteous, we may gravitate toward law and and discount the notion of grace because we feel like we're self-righteous enough. Jesus fulfilled both the perfection demanded by the law and the promise given to Abraham. Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment of both of those aspects so that the law drives us to Jesus and our sinfulness drives us to Jesus, both to receive the promise of life. Does that make sense? Verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Listen to the language describing the law. And Paul is laying it on thick, trying to convince the Galatians, don't go back to the law. You were held captive. You were imprisoned. The law was a guardian. It was like a prison guard standing outside the jail cell, keeping you under imprisonment. This chapter makes several key statements like that about the law. Back in verse 10, you're cursed... If you abandon the gospel of grace by faith and you try to please God by works and law-keeping, the curse that is under all those who are in sin. Verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are cursed because you have to do them all. It's not enough to choose, I keep this particular aspect of the law, but then violate every other aspect of the law. The righteous, um, the self-righteous young wealthy ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? Keep the law. And he gave him an example of all the things in the law. And this guy answered Jesus, I've done all that. All my life, I've perfectly kept the law. Says Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, there's one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have. Abandon it all and come follow me. And what did the guy do? He walked away sad because he had great possessions. What's the point of that? Jesus just demonstrated to him that he idolized wealth more than Jesus himself. He didn't even know. He thought he was self-righteous. He thought he had it all. I've followed every single point of the law flawlessly. And Jesus said, ah, but you missed the, the, the one great sin that we all carry, which is idolatry to worship something other than God entirely. Because we're incapable because of our sin. And there's a curse on those who abandon the gospel of grace and then try to work to please God by works and law keeping. Verse 11 says that no one is ever justified by the law. That is, no one can be right with God by following the law. Verse 3 says that the, I'm sorry, uh, verse 17 says that the promise was received by faith and established first, and the law was temporary, and it came with an expiration date in the completion of Jesus Christ when he fulfilled the entire law of God. Um, Verse 18 says the inheritance comes by faith, not by law. Uh, In verse 19, he asked why the law, uh, and and we gave the answer to that. Verse 21, the law complements faith, Uh, Verse 23, the law held us in prison. 
It was a guardian until Christ came. The law shows the futility of trying to please God by your own works of righteousness. Basically by saying you can't claim to be sinless. There's not a person among us who can claim to be sinless. Romans 3.23 says that for all have what? Have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one among us who is without sin. And if you say you're without sin, 1 John 1.8 says, if you claim to be without sin, you make God a liar. And if that's not a sin, I don't know what is. Right? To call God a liar because you say you're sinless? It is an arrogant, deceived person who thinks that they can please God by their own works and righteousness. Better to throw yourself at the mercy of God who in Christ Jesus provides a way through in spite of our sinfulness. Why would anyone exchange grace for law? I started to think about some of the worst trade-offs in history. If you're a Philadelphia sports fan, these may be painful, but like Job, stand up like a man and listen, right? When the Sixers traded Moses Malone in 1986, and he went on to be an all-star five times over. When they traded the house for Andrew Bynum, who never saw the court in 2012, when they traded Kurt Schilling in 2000, Wilt Chamberlain in 1968, Charles Barkley in 1992, Eric Lindros in 1992, Ryan Sandberg in 1982, and Ferguson Jenkins, the great pitcher in 1968, some of the worst trade-offs in history, for those of you who know those things. Maybe you're not a sports fan. Maybe this will appeal to you more. Ron Wayne sold 10% of his Apple share in 1976 for $800. It says here, if you own 10% of Apple and you sold it for $800 in 1976, what would that be worth today? That's stake. Try $120 billion making it undoubtedly one of history's worst trades. That's the harsh reality that Ron Wayne, age 78, faces every morning when he wakes up, one of the three original founders of the consumer electronics giant. Ron first met Steve Jobs when he was 21-year-old mar marketing guy at Atari. Uh, Ron dumped all of his shares when he became convinced that Steve Jobs' reckless spending was going to drive the startup into the ground, and he wanted to protect all of his own assets from future bankruptcy. Co-founder Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak each kept their original 45% ownership. Today, Jobs' widow, Lorraine Powell Jobs, has a 0.5% ownership in Apple worth $4 billion, while the value of Wozniak's share remains undisclosed. Today, Ron is living off a meager monthly Social Security check in remote area of Nevada, about as far out in the middle of nowhere as you can get, where he is occasionally seen playing penny slots. Talk about a horrible trade. 
I could go on and on. The 1973 sale of all the Star Wars licensing, merchandising, and future rights were given to George Lucas for $150,000 because Fox Studios did not, the executives agreed that this franchise was worthless. Napoleon's 1803 sale of the Louisiana Purchase to the United States. There are so many examples of exchanging something worthless, exchanging something worth everything for something worthless, humanly speaking. But the greatest tragedy, according to Romans 1, 21 through 23, is that although we know who God is, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And they traded the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. The Galatian churches exchanged the gospel of grace for an impossible gospel of works. They traded grace and forgiveness and life and the uh, inheritance and heaven and life on earth and forgiveness. They traded all of that for an impossible gospel of works. To exchange Jesus and the gospel of grace for an attempt to please God by works of the law is one of the worst trade-offs in history. There's two tracks presented here. You can be right with God by being perfectly without sin, following the works of the law perfectly. That's your adventure. You can choose it. All right, turn to page 47. Find out how that ends. Or the other thing you can do is lay down your pride and be right with God by faith in the perfect one who perfectly fulfilled the law on your behalf and died as perfectly pleasing to God on the cross so that those of us with sin who cry out to him, who look to him, as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole in the desert wanderings and everyone who was bitten by the curse and destined to death, if they just looked upon the bronze snake on top of the pole, they would be healed. Lift up your eyes. Look to Christ alone. Repent of your self-righteousness that says, I'm good enough. On my own, I don't need Jesus. You can be right with God by faith in the perfect one who is without sin. You can do that by expressing your dependence on Jesus by faith. Imagine if there was a wall dividing the center line of this room. And on this half, you're the good side today, all right? On this half are those who are walking by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and destined for eternity in heaven. Uh, and this wall was a dividing line. And all those on this side, sorry, you're on the losing side today. All those on this side were um, in their own sins, unforgiven. And you wanted to get from this side of the room to this side of the room, but this wall is impenetrable. The gospel says that Jesus becomes a doorway from death to life. In John 10, Jesus says to them, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. 
I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We call it sola fide, and it's a beautiful truth of Scripture that is only by grace through faith in Christ alone that we're saved, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And if you receive that, then you're going to be encouraged because next week we talk about your new identity in Christ in chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. We become sons and daughters, adopted by the Father, clothed in Christ, free from all the petty cultural divisions of race and color into oneness with all of God's people, heirs of the promise, redeemed from slavery to sin and indwelled by the promised Holy Spirit. And that's yours if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're on this side of the room. Sorry, this side. You lose out. So Father, we praise you that salvation is not something that we accomplish on our own merits. We praise you for that. In our own sinfulness, we would warp that and we would twist it and it would become somehow for our own glory. And you are too glorious to share your glory with us. And so salvation by grace through faith exalts Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his atoning sacrifice on the cross as a substitute for sinners like me. And we worship you for that. It is reason for us to praise. It's reason enough for us to sing. And it's reason enough for us to exalt you for all eternity. And may we do so beginning today in Jesus' name. Amen.